Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Every state contributed blood and treasure to its side's effort in the American Civil War. Michigan was no exception. Why tell Michigan's story particularly? Because sometimes you just have to go with the home team. And I was born in Detroit, Michigan, and I'm going to talk with you today about its story in the book Michigan and the Civil War, A Great and Bloody Sacrifice by Jack Dempsey. Jack will be our guest today on Civil War Talk Radio. Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite World Talk Radio network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at World Talk Radio and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you today from the World Talk Radio, no, the Civil War Talk Radio uh, World Headquarters Annex at my home office in Greenville, North Carolina. So I'm not using the facilities of East Carolina University, and thus don't even have to explain that I'm not speaking for them. I'm, I'm out of the office today, uh, down with a cold. I hope that does not show too badly in my voice, but unfortunately I'm not 100%. Uh, but hopefully there will be enough uh, voice to get us through the program and ask the questions and hear the answers uh, of our guest today. Since I'm away from the... Uh, the office office. I don't have the usual uh, information in front of me as to our upcoming shows, but uh, by memory, I know we'll be hearing from uh, from Jason Phillips uh, on Die Hard Rebels in the weeks ahead. Also, Adam Aronson on St. Louis in the Civil War. Uh, we'll have Leonard Lanier discussing Brian Grimes, the last officer to be commissioned a general in the Confederate forces, and his story both before, during, and after the Civil War. Uh, so we've got, uh, those are a few that come to mind of people we'll be hearing from in the uh, days and weeks ahead. As always, the uh, website, impedimentsofwar.org, invites you to take a look there and see uh, the host, Mark Gaffney, has prepared lists of past shows and upcoming shows and can give you all the information. There's also a button to click for the uh, the Civil War uh, Talk Radio Book Fund. You can donate uh, to the Book Fund. Uh, books are loosely defined both as things with pages and covers on them, also electronic books, also uh, containers of uh, soft drinks or anything else I might choose to buy with your money. Uh, in other words, it's not a charitable donation. Uh, it's just to help out the show, and actually some of the fund really does go to the website itself, to uh, impedimentsofwar.org, which uh, does deserve support, so it's not out of pocket from uh, from our friends there. Let's see, if you are uh, eager to contact Civil War Talk Radio in person, I will be speaking on February 27th at... Mississippi State University in Starkville, Mississippi, uh, on behalf of uh, an event sponsored by the Abraham Lincoln Bicentennial Foundation at the U.S. Grant Papers, the Grant Papers, as uh, the listeners to the show might remember from hearing us talk with John Marslack, and long before that, John Y. Simon. Uh, those papers are now at Mississippi State University, and I'll be talking about uh, Abraham Lincoln and U.S. Grant. And uh, the first weekend of March, 
first Thursday in March, second Thursday. Uh, I should know because it would be be bad to show up for a talk on the wrong day. Um, but coming up in March uh, of 2012, on Thursday the 8th, I'll be speaking to the Puget Sound Civil War Roundtable in Seattle, Washington. So if you're uh, anywhere on the thousand-mile-long West Coast, you'll immediately want to make plans to dash up to Seattle and uh, join me for that uh, event. I look forward to seeing uh, some listeners there who uh, I've not had a chance to chat with. Last week we talked to Don McHugh from California. Uh, in a couple of weeks I'll be in Seattle, so we're, we're spreading the tentacles of Civil War talk radio across the continent. Well, this week we go to the Midwest, uh, to my native ground, to talk about Michigan and the Civil War. Uh, that's the title of the book I'm holding here, Michigan and the Civil War, A Great and Bloody Sacrifice, uh, by Jack Dempsey. Jack, are you there? Yes, Jerry, this is Jack. Thanks for having me. Uh, good to have you on the show. Um, you, you and I have corresponded more than a few times uh, about the show, and uh, in the course of, of that, I discovered you not only listened to Civil War talk radio, but had written a book yourself, which you were kind enough to uh, have your publisher send to me, and uh, you had given our, our common interest in the Wolverine state, it seemed appropriate to uh, get a chance to ask you a few questions about it. Uh, but let me start with uh, uh, the, the usual background question. Uh, writing this book, I gather, is not your day job. Uh, what else do you do? That's correct. I'm an attorney in Ann Arbor for Dickinson Wright, one of the oldest law firms in Michigan. Um, I do uh, regulatory law, which is quite a specialty. Um, so that's my day job. I, unlike you, I took the route of unrighteousness and after law school went into the practice of law. That's my day job. And by night, I am a... Uh, advocate for Michigan history. Uh, well, that, that's a, uh, both good things to do. I, I often have thought that if I'd, I'd, I practiced law for a few years after graduating from uh, University of Michigan Law School, and if I had been in, in a different firm with different mentors or different specialties, I might still be doing it today. I think I was doing some singularly unedifying things involving other people's money and uh, really didn't want to keep doing that, but... Uh, I, I'm not so cynical as to be unaware that many, many parts of society wouldn't function without lawyers to smooth things out and make them work. Uh, but history, uh, uh, none of society would function without history, so I'm, I'm glad to hear that occupies you as well. Uh, your book here says you were a, a member, get it right here, a member of the uh, uh, Michigan Historical Commission, vice president of, of that. What does the Michigan Historical Commission do? The commission is a um, group of volunteer appointees, mostly by the governor of Michigan, with two appointees made by the leaders in the Michigan legislature. So we are not state employees. We do not get compensation from the state or reimbursement of our expenses. What we do is meet um, several times a year, to review and approve Michigan historical markers, plus uh, a number of other things. But most relevant to this show, in late 2007, we were directed by our governor to uh, lead the commemoration of the Civil War sesquicentennial, which is actually the main reason, uh, if not the only reason, that I attempted to get on the commission and was appointed in June of that year. So the timing was tremendously um, fortuitous, and we've been working on the sesquicentennial um, ever since December of 2007. What, what kind of things do you have planned? We have, uh, well, let me go backwards first. Um, we like to brag that we were the first state to hold a sesquicentennial event in March of two, um, yes, 2009, we had a conference at the uh, Charles Wright Museum of African American History in Detroit. By the way, I was born there too, Jerry, um, which 
commemorated the meeting between John Brown, Frederick Douglass, and a number of African-American business leaders from Detroit. Brown was trying to get uh, support for his Harper's Ferry expedition and uh, had a meeting there. So we had an excellent conference. And then in the fall of 2010, uh, there was a conference at Grand Valley State University on the west side of the state um, where we had some speakers come, including Brooks Simpson. Last year um, being the beginning, I guess you'd say, of the actual commemoration of the war, we had um, somewhere in the order of... uh, 150 events in Michigan, not that we sponsored them all, but one of our main roles is to act as a clearinghouse um, by putting up information on our website, our sesquicentennial website, um, helping people plan events, get them publicized, and so forth. And, of course, my book coming out in February of last year and another fortuitous thing that really, uh, I think, helped convey the message across the state here that uh, we have a great um, role that we need to commemorate with regard to the Civil War. Now, coming up, um, we continue to have a work plan where we will have events um, both within Michigan and without. Um, The most recent development is we were just invited by the Antietam National Battlefield to think about and work with them on a Michigan day at Antietam this fall. So that's very exciting for us. Well, that that uh, will keep me posted on that. Sounds very interesting. I'm, I think I'm speaking in, in Rochester in June this year, so uh, I look forward to getting back to Michigan and, and hopefully seeing you and other folks there. The the comment about the Brown meeting, John Brown's meeting with Frederick Douglass and others uh, before the war, reminds, you know, points out the fact that your book starts before the war with a very interesting chapter on Michigan's role in the uh, in the anti-slavery movement, and uh, I thought it was interesting. You, you talk about things you might expect, like the Underground Railroad uh, and the uh, the uh, founding of the Republican Party, which uh, listeners will recall, really starts after the demise of the Whig Party in 1854. Uh, there are a number of places in the Midwest that contend to be the birthplace of the Republican Party, uh, but you you present Michigan's story. How how did that come about? Um, well, because the uh, Kansas-Nebraska Act had unsettled the political dynamic, the anti-slavery movement here in Michigan was galvanized both um, on the part of those who were um, Whigs and I think also those who had been members of the Democratic Party. They gathered in Jackson on a day um, where they actually had to move outside of the town. They had so many people there, and that is um, our claim to fame as the the inception of the Republican Party. I don't think there's any question about it. Uh, I guess Wisconsin has some claim to that, but as we know last night when Michigan State beat Wisconsin in basketball, uh, anybody from Michigan clearly has it over those in Wisconsin. Well, there, there's a, uh, the, the home voice, very good. The... Uh I mean, there were movements, uh, the anti-slavery movement led to the coalescing of anti-Nebraska, as they were called, anti-Nebraska people who opposed the the Nebraska Act in different places, in Michigan, in Wisconsin, uh, in Illinois, and elsewhere. But the, the Michigan, the, the first one to claim the, the, the title Republican is certainly one that's been debated, and Michigan's claim is as stronger or stronger than any for that. The uh, an argument I've heard expressed. Uh, David Herbert Donald, I know, argued this uh, was that Michigan and the other upper Midwestern states, Wisconsin, Minnesota, uh, could be seen culturally as the the an expanded version of New England, the Greater New England, that most of the many of the settlers who came to Michigan in the early 19th century came from New England. 
the same would be true of the northern tier of Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, whereas the southern tier of those states tended to be settled from the south, from Kentucky. So those states were more divided, whereas the upper north states really were uh, fairly solid in their support uh, of the anti-slavery platform of the Republican Party of Abraham Lincoln uh, through the war years. Does that, does that drive with your research? I think Dr. Donald's uh, very much correct in that analysis. We have tremendous New England roots um, here back in the 1800s. A lot of settlers who moved from New England. Um, but I would also say it's not exclusively that factor. Um, in 1787, when the Northwest Ordinance was passed by the um, the uh, Congress that predated our Constitutional Congress under the Articles of Confederation, that ordinance said there would not be slavery in Michigan. And so our tradition of personal liberty goes back to 1787. When the Michigan Constitution was drafted in 1835, you know, a quarter century before the Civil War, it incorporated that prohibition. Um, so the heritage here of being anti-slavery, I think, um, dovetails with the westward movement from New England, but it also has other roots. And our first governor, the boy governor, Stevens T. Mason, who was uh, a derivative of the Mason family of Virginia. In fact, he was born in Virginia. When he acted as governor here, um, he was someone who personally regarded slavery um, as as repugnant. Um, and I think you see that tradition, therefore, on, well, sort of both sides of the aisle, not just uh, on, the, on the one side, if you want to think about the Republican Party. I mean, Lewis Cass is probably the best-known Democrat from Michigan in that era, and he supported Stephen Douglas's view of popular sovereignty, the, the idea that the West could be open to slavery and then let the settlers there decide at some future date. Uh, but even he was not, he was not virulently pro-slavery, though. The, the popular sovereignty argument could be, could be portrayed as a neutral argument, although uh, as Lincoln said, this was uh, covert, uh, real, this professed indifference, but covert, real zeal for slavery, uh, as he called it, uh, lies underneath popular sovereignty. But when the war begins, there, there's no question at all about uh, uh, which way Michigan is going to go in terms of, of supporting the Union. Uh, in fact, uh, there was a uh, Michigan officer at Fort Sumter what we're going to do now is take a short break. We'll come back and talk more with Jack Dempsey about Michigan in the Civil War, find out the role of some prominent and some less well-known Michigan uh, figures who served in the Civil War. We'll do that when we come back in just a moment on Civil War Talk Radio. have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop take world talk radio on the go and listen anywhere get our mobile app for iphone blackberry or android at the apple itunes app store blackberry app world or android market are you looking to improve your personal or professional branding what about your business we've got a program that will help streamline your image management tune in to marketing matters hosted by yasmine anderson smith your business and public image is important to your customers' perceptions. And in this day and age, how you market yourself or your company can make the difference between running a successful business and shutting it down. Marketing Matters can be heard every Wednesday at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific, on World Talk Radio Variety. Are you where you want to be in life? Are you experiencing the happiness that you're entitled to? How'd you like to improve your life and well-being? 
Take a weekly break to listen to Change Your Mind, Change Your Life with your hosts, Jim and Lynn Swearingen. You'll learn how hypnosis can truly help you rewrite the chapters of your life. You'll also learn to change perceptions of what hypnosis is and what it isn't. Be sure to listen every Wednesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Jack Dempsey, author of Michigan and the Civil War, A Great and Bloody Sacrifice. Uh, we talked a little bit in our first segment about Michigan's role in the run up to the Civil War, particularly in the anti-slavery movement. Uh, Jack, I wanted to ask you a question about the book itself before we get back to uh, the historical story. This is published by the History Press of Charleston, South Carolina, which has a very large catalog now of books, mostly on local topics, uh, mostly by authors uh, who, who tend to be first book authors, but not exclusively. Uh, how did you get connected with History Press, and what was it like working with them? That's a great question. Uh, one day I was sitting in my office, and I received a phone call from an editor at the History Press, and uh, he indicated that he had been reading my blog. Um, that's something I've been writing off and on since early 2007 about Michigan and the Civil War, primarily, although some other topics. I'm a big Detroit Red Wings fan, and occasionally I would, started. <laughs> I would throw something else in. So he uh, said, um, are you interested in writing a book? And I said, yes, I have a few ideas. And we chatted about that for a few minutes. His uh, comment to me finally was, well, the Civil War is hot right now. And um, so we talked further, decided this would be a great topic. And uh, I vetted the history press. I wasn't sure that this wasn't a vanity press, although I actually had a number of copies that they had published um, on my shelf at home. And uh, sure enough, they're obviously reputable. They're great to work with. Um, it was just a tremendous experience. And to see your name in print, to have a book printed, uh, published, is just amazing. And let me throw in a shameless plug. Um, earlier this year, I was uh, extremely honored and uh, left speechless, something rare for an attorney, when uh, the book was uh, named one of the 2012 Michigan Notable Books. So it's been a great experience, and I'm very grateful to the History Press. Well, I think it, it's, a, it's a sign of the changing world of publication and of, of technology. As you pointed out, uh, you know, it's not a vanity press. There, there, are, there have always been vanity presses where a, a would-be author could pay someone to put his or her book between covers and, and put it out there, but that, uh, you know, other than gratifying the author's ego, says nothing about it. If the whole point of publication is an editor and a, a, a publisher somewhere think the author has something worth saying or something that people will pay money to, to read. And at, a, at another level, uh, with the academic press publishes a book if the author has something that passes the muster of peer reviewers. So you've got two layers of publication, the popular press and the, uh, and the, the, the peer-reviewed press. And technology is, is, is putting a squeeze on peer-reviewed publications on university presses because of, of costs. But the popular press was once open only to people who could promise they'd make a lot of money for a publisher. You couldn't just go to... Uh, you know, Simon and Schuster, and say, I've got an idea for Michigan in the Civil War, and they'd say, here's a $50,000 advance, go to it. Uh, that doesn't happen. But with these smaller presses, like the History Press, it is possible for somebody with something to say on you know, a relatively niche topic can, can get their work out there and, uh, and let the market uh, uh, be the peer reviewers, but decide if it's worth reading, as, as this book uh, 
I can assure our listeners certainly is, uh, particularly if uh, if you share an interest in the topic, Michigan and the Civil War. I found out a lot of uh, little things I did not know reading this, starting with Fort Sumter, where, where the war story obviously begins. You mentioned the experience of Norman Hall, uh, a Michigan native, uh, a Michigander, uh, uh, people outside the state might say a Michiganian, but uh, I've never heard that within the state. I don't know if you have. Well, um, yeah, there is a debate about whether the which one is the proper term, but since Michigander is the term that uh, Abraham Lincoln used to describe us when he was talking about Lewis Cass, I think that's the one that we should use. I think that that, that settles the issue right there for me. Uh, well, well, Norman Hall was a second lieutenant at Fort Sumter, and uh, you talk about his adventures there. One thing you mentioned is that on April 1st, 1861, as the garrison was, was hunkered down in Fort Sumter, Confederate batteries fired on a Union flagship uh, outside the, the bar that was, that was approaching, and Anderson and his men, his officers, debated whether they should open fire in return and, and voted not to do so. Hall wanted to, but others didn't. What do you suppose would have happened if the garrison Fort Sumter had opened fire on the shore batteries? Uh, well, what, I think, what happens next? I think the history of the war probably would have been a little different um, because um, the the fort itself wasn't really under attack, so it, it could have been a different beginning to the war, which is interesting to go down the alternative history route uh, to think about. But I think it shows how somebody like Norman Hall. Uh, educated at West Point, serving in the U.S. military, was very zealous to defend the flag, even though he was in um, a location far from his home in Monroe, Michigan. And his exploits during the Fort Sumter event and then later um, at Antietam and certainly at Gettysburg show that uh, he was of one mind, which was to uphold his his sworn duty to defend the American flag. Well, there, there, there's certainly an outbreak of patriotic fervor after the firing on Fort Sumter in, in across Michigan and, and across the entire north and the south as well. But if uh, if Hall and the, the younger, perhaps more hot-headed officers that had their way in the fort and fired on the shore batteries, if that had been portrayed as an act of aggression by the government against South Carolina, then much of the the rally to the defense of the flag argument might have been weakened, and uh, you might not have seen as much support throughout the North, uh, which really could have changed things radically, but, but of course we will not know. Instead, uh, the history takes place as we know. Hall and, and the rest of the garrison have to surrender and, and recover back to the north, which leads to the the uh, enlistment of troops. Michigan had a a, a quota under the first call for seventy five thousand three month volunteers of only one regiment, but uh, a lot more than that were ready to volunteer. Were they not? That's exactly right. There was a tremendous outpouring of uh, volunteers to respond right after Fort Sumter. Um, and indeed, really, through the first year of the war, um, because of the geography of Michigan, um, some of those volunteers in the Upper Peninsula ended up in Wisconsin and maybe even Minnesota regiments because of the difficulty of traveling all the way from the UP down to the mustering stations in southeast Michigan and southern Michigan. And then there were others who, um, because of the limits, crossed over into Ohio and even Indiana and volunteered in those regiments. And I've seen a figure of 4,000 Michiganders who served in regiments of other states. So when we look at the population of Michigan in 1860, which was about 750,000, 
and we had roughly 90,000 troops in uh, Michigan units, and then 4,000 in other other states' units, and then, of course, those who were in the regular army, like Norman Hall, um, you can see that we had a tremendous proportion of uh, those who were of military age volunteer. When uh, when I was an undergraduate at U of M, I wrote a, a senior thesis on recruiting in Michigan during the war, setting myself on this lifelong path of uh, uh, pursuit of, of this topic. And I compared the enlistment rates in counties, in, in urban counties like Wayne County, uh, or Kent County, uh, Grand Rapids, compared to uh, the, the what were then the frontier counties, and I, I'm not recalling which ones I selected exactly, but uh, I don't even think I got to the Upper Peninsula, but, but the, the thinly settled counties uh, north and west of the, the cities. And what surprised me was that the enlistment percentages as a percentage of the, uh, the white male population were higher in the urban counties than, than on the frontier. The professor in that course was a very interested in the Turner thesis that the frontier had made America great and I had somewhat expected to find the hardy frontiersmen volunteering in larger numbers but it turned out the other way around. Uh, I wonder if you have any thought about that just off the top of your head. Um, I, my own view is that there was a tremendous outpouring in both rural and so-called urban areas in Michigan. We didn't really have that many large communities. Uh, I think Detroit had a population of 45,000, something like that. But I do think you're right that more um, proportionally did come from the cities and the towns, probably because of the different economic situation. Michigan was very rural, uh, very agricultural, and to leave your business, your farm behind, and go off to fight, um, I think is a very, is a much more difficult thing to do than if you are a clerk in a urban or city uh, place of business where you're, you're not leaving your family to run this entire enterprise. And that's, in fact, that's one of the points I tried to make in the book, is that the entire society of Michigan, both male and female, had to respond to make this victory possible. And so the role of women in the war um, is very important and should not be overlooked. Those who stayed at home on the farm and had to run that business, those who um, had to figure out how to do that in a city situation, um, but... I think generally you're right that it's more it's easier for a person in a job in Detroit, say, to leave that behind than to do so out in Climax, Michigan. That, that's that's what I theorized as well. I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, you, you mentioned women in the war. It, you had a very good line in, in your book that uh, many traditional accounts of the Civil War would uh, have a, a brief chapter about women as spies or nurses and then move on and that would be the only role uh, accounted for but as you say uh, they, they had to take over the home front they had to run uh, run everything while uh, the men were away we had a, a book discussion here a couple weeks ago about a Minnesota couple uh, and the letters from the home front from the woman at home and the man at the front really revealed that tension uh, but there are also some women, uh, you point out a few well-known cases of women who went to the front and, and served with Michigan units. Right, and um, not something that's simply urban legend or rural legend, but uh, because after the war, in at least one case, they were awarded a pension uh, as a soldier, as a veteran, uh, there's proof positive that they actually served in the ranks. Aside from those few um, women who somehow went through the process and still got a uniform on, um, we, we tend to overlook those who were in the um, aid societies, the Christian Commission, the Sanitary Commission, um, and that also was a significant contribution 
that Michigan women played both here in the state and then closer to the front um, in Washington and elsewhere. So I think women were key to Union victory. Um, oftentimes I've read how the women of the South were so important, at least initially in helping motivate the Confederate soldier and then perhaps at, towards the end of the war um, demotivate them. But here in Michigan, I don't think you can... Uh, say that our women back in that era um, had a role that was any less important than those who actually went to the front and and had to shoulder a musket. And uh, you also mentioned that they played a role in the memorialization of the war, and there, uh, there are several good recent books on, on uh, Southern women and the memorialization of the war, since Southern men could hardly take too much uh, uh, Put, put too much effort into commemorating their own defeat uh, after the war, but their women could do so. There's There was a lot, uh, the, the United Daughters of the Confederacy, for example. Uh, but you point out that it was uh, Michigan women who created the Soldiers and Sailors Monument in downtown Detroit. Uh, uh, so there was that role. We're going to take another short break now. Uh, come back, I want to ask you uh, about some Michigan generals in the war and, and uh, which one, which story is most appealed to you? We'll come back. Uh, we're talking with Jack Dempsey, author of Michigan and the Civil War A Great and Bloody Sacrifice. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. We all lead busy lives, and sometimes we think we can't take care of our health. We battle food addictions, time restrictions, and media conflictions when it comes to our health. Now, you can tune in to the Dare to Be Healthy Show with host Alia Almoayed. Good health comes to those who dare to take the leap into the amazing world of natural healing. Find out what it's like to look and feel great. And finally, live your life to its maximum potential. Let Alia and her guests show you how. Dare to Be Healthy is broadcast live Mondays at 11 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Hey, did you know Voice America has partnered with the Kidstar Network to expand their reach through Voice America Kids? Voice America Kids will feature talk radio for kids, by kids, along with special event programming and live broadcasts. Each program is conveniently archived for on-demand listening at any time. Please check our archives for the latest events and happenings on voiceamericakids.com. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. I'm talking today with Jack Dempsey about Michigan and the Civil War. Uh, we've been discussing the, uh, the military effort of the state of Michigan uh, at the beginning of the war, the uh, initial recruitment and organization of units. And I left with a question about uh, general officers uh, from the state of Michigan. And uh, uh, Jack, I'm curious about which ones you came across that maybe you were not as familiar with uh, or, or one, ones that listeners might even not be familiar with. Uh, but what would your, who's your favorite? I'll put it that way. Well, my favorite would be someone that we do know about, and that's George Armstrong Custer. Um, I think his, as I point out in the book, and as a number of reviewers have commented, his role during the Civil War has been eclipsed by what happened at uh, some place out west called Little Bighorn. But his leadership during the Civil War really was second to none, and the um, the the attitude of the soldiers under him, which I think is always a great um, measure of how good a leader is, um, they just revered him. He was a, a tremendous leader. But 
for those who I, I really had never heard of, and I have to admit, I've been a Civil War student since I was a little kid, probably seven or eight years old, and only really turned my attention to Michigan in the last decade. Um, when I came across stories like that of Israel Richardson, who led um, the attack, an attack on the sunken lane at Antietam, I actually was thunderstruck to find out that a Michigan general uh, was there at the point of the spear, the tip of the spear, um, at that battle. And, of course, had one of those moments when you look on the battlefield map and you see Richardson Avenue right there at the sunken lane, the bloody lane, um, you, you make that synaptic connection finally that, oh, wow. Um, so Richardson is one. I think he's probably the, the most colorful of them all because he was um, a, a very um, opinionated leader. He was someone who, like Grant, did not stand on ceremony, did not dress in full blue um, official uniform most of the time. And as I point out in the book, at Antietam, was right there in the front of the line, uh, not telling his men to go forward, um, but like Custer, leading them into battle, unfortunately paid for it with his life. And there is one anecdote that when Lincoln visited him at the Pry House after the battle, part of Lincoln's motivation was to measure the man to see whether he should be the general that replaced uh, McClellan, who obviously was not moving out as Lincoln wanted after the battle to pursue Lee. But Richardson died of his wound, and so that's another one of those alternative history uh, routes that we can speculate about, but we'll never really know. You mentioned uh, Custer as, as being beloved by his men, uh, when Gregory Irwin was on the show with us, he pointed out, uh, I asked him the same question, that, that he was, in fact, Custer was very popular with his men during the Civil War, but very unpopular uh, in the, the campaign against the Sioux. Uh, and one wonders what what many changes had taken place between the Volunteer Army and the Regular Army. But staying with the Civil War, let me throw out, uh, as I was reading your book, I was curious to uh, see what mention of Alpheus Williams, the uh, the forgotten brigadier, the uh, uh, some have said the the best Union general, never to go from one star to two star, never to get the major general's commission. Uh, commanded a division throughout the war, commanded Twelfth Corps at Gettysburg, uh, and it today has a magnificent equestrian statue of him on Belle Isle, uh, the, the park in downtown Detroit. But uh, nobody who goes to Belle Isle know who's, knows who that guy on the horse is, do they? They really don't, um, because his story, um, like so many Michigan stories with regard to the Civil War, just has never been told very well. Um, and that's why I think this sesquicentennial uh, commemoration is a great opportunity to try to educate people here in Michigan and elsewhere about the role of people like Williams. Another general is um, um, who's not well-known either is Orlando Wilcox, who led the 1st Michigan, the 90-day regiment, at First Bull Run. And another revelation to me, um, the 1st Michigan actually made the furthest uh, incursion into the Confederate line um, south of Henry Hill, so much so that Wilcox was wounded and ended up being captured. So he served uh, as a prisoner of war for almost a year, but then came back and was at Antietam and um, survived the war. And then his papers, his memoirs, his diaries were never published until the last 20 years um, when a book called Forgotten Valor came out. And uh, as I do my presentations on the book around Michigan, I use that as a case example, that here's a man who was a tremendous leader, POW, Medal of Honor winner, um, 
who whose story was buried for well over a hundred years and deserves to be told. The uh, in addition to these generals that that are sometimes forgotten, there are also some interesting Michigan units that you mentioned. And I want to ask you about one in particular that I've always wondered about. Uh, every state has its its infantry, its cavalry, and its artillery uh, units, but Michigan also had the the first Michigan Mechanics and Engineers, uh, a regimental strength engineer unit. Uh, how did they come about, and, and were they really all engineers? No, they weren't uh, all engineers, um, but they certainly were proficient in the skills that were necessary to build bridges, to build railroads, repair railroads, to uh, keep supply lines going, and occasionally to um, use the weapon that they had that they were trained to use in armed conflict. Um, They built a, a famous bridge uh, across the Tennessee near uh, Chattanooga, known as the Michigan Bridge. And because of the nature of that unit, they were actually split up um, over a geography. So they were a regiment that was uh, dispersed um, over a number of of uh, battlegrounds and, and areas. And again, a book came out on that regiment only within the last 10 years telling that story when Really, there hadn't been adequate discussion of their service really heretofore. They, uh, I mean, they, they also fought as a, a traditional regiment. I know at Stones River they held a portion of the line. And uh, definitely uh, you know, a story not frequently told. Another Michigan regiment that you, you mentioned that uh, doesn't get a lot of press is uh, the hundred and. 102nd USCT, United States Colored Troops, that was originally raised as the 1st Michigan Colored Regiment. Uh, Everyone's heard of the 54th Massachusetts. Uh, What about the 1st Michigan Colored Regiment? What was their story? Their story was that they formed in in late 63 and uh, were mustered in in 64 and um, did not fight on any major well-known battlefield, but their service also was something to be proud of. If you can imagine them being shipped down to South Carolina um, and fighting in that area, in Florida, um, they had a rather obvious distinction uh, when they showed up on a battlefield, and it wasn't just their blue uniform, um, putting them at uh, some risk of, of treatment that would not necessarily have been given to to white soldiers, so their bravery in going down to the deep south to fight, I think, is also something that uh, we needed to commemorate. And I should mention that because of those kinds of stories, we're also, um, as part of the sesquicentennial, working on some memorial highway designations here in Michigan for units like the 1st Michigan CT, um, and, and one that many people don't know about, the Michigan Cavalry Brigade that Custer commanded beginning at Gettysburg, and that uh, was together for the rest of the war. The uh, Now, there is an Iron Brigade highway in Michigan. Uh, That's correct. It stretches it, from Detroit all the way to New Buffalo. And with the 24th Michigan, the unit that was um, really devastated uh, on the first day at Gettysburg, it was part of that brigade. But ironically, we don't really have any Civil War-specific highway designations for Michigan-only units, and that's something that we're, we're going to correct. Uh, that, uh, I've driven that, uh, I guess, US-24 uh, route uh, many, many times between uh, Detroit and uh, the western part of the state. Uh, my wife is from Grand Rapids, and uh, many times uh, got to go back and forth from Ann Arbor. Uh, to Grand Rapids. The uh, uh, Michigan unit also played a role, uh, as uh, the back of your, your book illustrates, in the near the end of the war, in the capture of Jefferson Davis. Uh, uh, what was the role there? Well, they were um, on the, the trail of Davis, caught up to him um, in Georgia, where he was with that small party 
Um, and they and another unit actually engaged in crossfire as the as the confusion of the affair um, uh, happened. And so, although it seems pretty clear to me that the Michigan unit was the one that indeed did the capture of Davis, they had to share the reward um, with the other unit from another state that uh, we don't really need to mention. Uh, that, that's, we'll believe that uh, unsaid. The, uh, uh, the the end of the war also brought uh, some some tragic consequences. Uh, you mentioned the uh, uh, the fate of the steamship Sultana. Uh, were Michigan men involved in that? Yes, quite a few were uh, victims of that disaster on the Mississippi. A terribly tragic story right there at the end of the war as they were on their way home. Um, it's gratifying that here in Michigan we do have a, um, a marker, a monument that was erected um, recently to the memory of those victims who um, made it all the way through the war but didn't make it home, like um, nearly 15,000 of the 90,000 Michiganders who served. So the... Are there, are there? I mentioned the the monument to Alpheus Williams in Detroit. Uh, the, the Soldiers and Sailors Monument uh, also in downtown. Uh, are there other Michigan monuments uh, in the state? Uh, I know there are some in each in some of the major battlefields. Right at, at the battlefields, there's also a number of uh, historical markers now at some sites like South Mountain. Um, there's going to be one at uh, Richmond, Kentucky, that was just recently approved. But there are other markers. Most of the ones on the state capitol grounds, ironically, are Civil War-related, including the statue to the war governor, Austin Blair. Uh, there's a big one in Grand Rapids, in Muskegon. And then if you drive through the small towns of Michigan, uh, Williamston being an example, a uh, town east of Lansing, you'll find monuments, statues to the the troops from the Civil War that hailed from that area. And so really the Civil War is all around us. Um, we just have to stop and look and and pay attention. And as as you were describing Williamson or Lansing or any other places, uh, listeners, both Jack and I were uh, extending our right hands and pointing at our palms to these places. <laughs> because we carry our Michigan maps everywhere we go. It was not until I moved out of the state that I realized not everyone in the world can do that. Uh, but uh, one of the many special things about uh, the Wolverine State, Jack, it has uh, been a pleasure talking with you about this. Uh, I wish we had more time, but I want to thank you for being here and sharing with us Michigan and the Civil War, a great and bloody sacrifice. You don't have to be from Michigan to enjoy reading this book. And Jack, thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk.